Hello. Um, yeah, so I hope you guys, uh, this is uh, interesting to me. Um, first time doing it over Zoom. <laughs> so it feels weird because it, although I see you guys, it feels like I'm talking to myself. Um, but I guess I do that a lot anyway. Uh, but um, if you would just turn to First John 4, 15 to 21, I'm reading and going to be teaching out of uh, the ESV translation. So we will start with uh, verse 15. And I've titled this Blessed Assurance, and I'm actually really glad that uh, I, and I was telling my wife, I was like, I hope, I hope whoever's leading music will pick a song that would say Blessed Assurance, and, it, and he did, and I was like, yes, Pastor Roger, all right, cool, thank you. Um, so thank you. Uh, verse 15. Um, thanks, John, for posting this. Okay. Verse 15. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. So we have come to know... Oh, wait, sorry. I'm sorry. Uh, God abides in him and he in God. Uh, verse 16. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love and whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love cast out fear for fear has to do with punishment and whoever fears has not been perfected in love we love first or we love because he first loved us if anyone says i love god and hates his brother he is a liar for he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love god whom he has not seen and this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So I want to say hello again. Uh, it's been a while since we've seen each other. Uh, I hope that you're, you're doing well. Um, I, I know that there's a lot going on in the world and in our nation. And um, I don't even know where to begin uh, this year. Um, it's just, it's already June and so much has happened. Um, I just know that my heart is heavy. My soul is distraught. Um, as I see sin just doing its work and being manifested in so many ways. Um, it just breaks my heart that we, we can even um, really come together. You know, I, I long for, for fellowship and I miss seeing each one of you face to face in person. Um, you know, it's just a teaser a lot, you know, whenever we, uh, you know, try to chat through the window and through the door. Um, uh, some of you guys who have come by, you know, I, I wish I could just give you guys a hug, you know, and, and, um, and it's that kind of uh, longing that, uh, you know, that I'm missing, you know, just the, this, the church body just being together, supporting each other. Um, and so as Christians, um, I'm reminded that as these things are happening, we must continue to demonstrate the love of God so that those who do not believe would see Christ in us and would know God's love. And it's difficult, especially during these times, to remember our identity as Christians because of everything that we're having to deal with. Physically, we're, we're not together. And so we're learning how to encourage each other online or through text, uh, through video chat. But I can tell you that a lot of us really miss just being with each other, you know, um, you know, as soon as as soon as we can, you know, and, and it's safe to go, you know, hug each other and, and kind of just be able to 
hang out with each other in each other's houses and everything, I'm sure we would, right? Uh, it'd be really cool to have, you know, again, those long, encouraging and edifying conversations face-to-face, -face, you know, without, you know, lagging or, you know, freezing, um, you know, or like, oh, I can't hear you. My audio broke up. Uh, we, we missed the fellowship. So as we look into First John, we know that the burden of this letter is to teach us how to be sure that God abides in us. Right. The question that we should be asking ourselves as we read through First John is, am I sure that God abides in me? Because this, this book is written passionately to give you that assurance. This book does not want anybody here at Joint Heirs saying, I don't know. Right? I don't know if God is in me or not. How can I tell? This book is written to give assurance so that when somebody asks you, do you really think the almighty God abides in you? You can say yes, with utmost confidence, yes. And 10 times in this letter, we read things like in, verse, uh, in chapter 2, verse 3, we see something that says, by this, we may be sure that we know him. By this, we may be sure that we are in him. By this, we may be seen who are the children of God. By this, we shall know that we are of the truth. By this, you know the spirit of God. By this, you know the spirit of, of truth, and you know that you are the children of God. And so 10 times he makes it clear that the burden of his heart is that he wants you to know that you are born of God to know that you are of the truth, to know that God abides in you and you in God. So the next question is, what does it mean for God to abide in you? Because in verse 13, if you look at verse 13, it says, by this, we know that we abide in him and he in us, right? What does this mean? And there are two possibilities. The first is that it's intimacy with God, right? a second stage Christianity. It means maturity. It means fellowship with God so that you can be saved and not be abiding in God and him not abiding in you, right? Some people say it's stage two in Christianity. He said that's a next level kind of thing, advanced Christianity. Or the other argument is, is it basic Christianity? Is God abiding in you and you abiding in God being saved? Is it being born again? Is it having the Holy Spirit indwell in your life? And I think that's what it means. And a good argument for this is in John fifteen six, where it says, if a man does not abide in me, he is cast forth as a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. So in Jesus' language, if you don't abide in him, and you don't have him abiding in you, you're not in the vine. You are in the fire. And in other words, he's not talking about two stages of, in Christianity. He's talking about being saved or unsaved, being born again or not born again. Either you're found or you're lost. And before I go into the, the passage, um, let me, if you could just pray with me um, as we go into the word. Father, I pray that you would just be with us as we uh, look at this passage tonight, Lord. Help us to understand, Lord, what it means for us when we have you in our lives. There are assurances that we can cling on to, to have confidence in. As believers, Lord, help us to remember our mission and to tug at our heart when our faith starts to go dry, Lord. Help us to look at your word and have it replenish our souls, Lord. 
may you be with us tonight, Lord, as we uh, look into First John, Lord. We thank you and pray all this in your name. Amen. Now, if you look at our passage tonight, there are two assurances that are mentioned. The first is assurance. The first assurance is the assurance of salvation. The assurance assurance of salvation. So, verse fifteen. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God. God abides in him and he in God. Confessing that Jesus is the Son of God is basic Christianity, not advanced Christianity. So verse 15 makes it very plain. The way we experience abiding in God is confessing the basic truth. That is, Jesus is the Son of God. And this is the same as chapter 5, verse 13, right? Uh, It's it's right over on my Bible, but it says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. And now this sounds like it's the same as confessing that Jesus is the Son of God. A person who believes in the name of the Son of God and the person who confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, they're the same person, right? That's the same thing. But what is at stake in chapter 5, verse 13, it says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have what? Intimacy with the Father? No, it's eternal life. Right? And so chapter 4, verse 15 says, if you confess Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in you. Chapter 15, verse 13, uh, sorry, chapter 5, verse 13 says, if you believe in the name of the Son of God, you have eternal life. And they're both saying the same thing. And the issue is not two stages of Christianity. The issue is you're saved or lost, born again or dead in sin. And this book is written to give you the assurance of salvation not to give you assurance that you have arrived at a second stage of maturity in Christ. And this is important because last week, um, Uncle Stan um, spoke on verses 12 and 13, right? We, we learned that there's a close link between the two because it has to do with us abiding in God and him abiding in us. And in fact, verses 13, uh, verses 12, 13, 15 and 16 all have that phrase abiding in God and him abiding in us. And that is clearly the concern here, right? We see now that it's a concern with salvation. It's a concern with being born of God, being of the truth and being saved. And so John reassured the believers of this by telling them that It is through the love that they have for one another in verse 12. It says, no man has ever seen God. And so the problem is, how can you be sure of a relationship with a God you can't see? And the answer is, if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. We can be sure of our relationship with him because the love we have for each other is the very presence of God in us. God abides in us. And since God is love, his presence in us is the perfecting or completing of his love in our love for each other. Verse 13 repeats the same truth with slightly different words. It says, by this, we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his own spirit. The love that you have for the children of God is a manifestation of the spirit of God within you. The the spirit does not merely manufacture love. The spirit bears the fruit of love. Fruit is one with the tree. The spirit is the love of God. 
And then if you jump over to verse 16, it says, we know and believe the love God has for us. God is love and he who abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. So here we are. Here we are back where we started. The experience of abiding in God, that is the experience of salvation, is manifested and preserved through abiding in love, which is the same thing verse 12 said. If we love one another, God abides in us. So the main point of these verses so far is that there is an aroma about God that cannot be concealed. It's the aroma of love. And when he comes into your life, the aroma also comes into your life. The aroma is the sign of God's saving presence. And if you smell it, you know he is there, right? You have assurance. But if you don't smell it, then you, you lose assurance and you cry out to God to cause his love to abound in your heart. So look, for example, uh, if you turn some pages back um, to 1 Thessalonians, if you could just turn to 1 Thessalonians. So look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 4. Paul fought this battle for the sake of his churches. He came and preached the gospel. But how did he have assurance that those who responded to his message were really chosen by God and born again? And he says in chapter 1, verse 4, For we know, brethren, beloved by God, that he has chosen you. For our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with joy inspired by the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. How was Paul sure that God had chosen the Thessalonian converts? and that their faith was genuine, right? Verses six and seven in this passage, because he saw evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit in the joy of faith, even in affliction. And also he saw in the exemplary life, they began to live for all to see. And he describes it in verse three. He says, we remember your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope, a faith that endured affliction joyfully and worked itself out in love was the mark of genuineness that Paul was looking for. And then, pray, and then Paul, he, he prayed earnestly night and day for the Thessalonian church. He prayed in chapter two, verses uh, 10 to 12, said, I pray earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith? So the faith he saw was by no means perfect, but yet it was real and he could see it. And then he goes on to pray for the love in verses 12 to 13. Uh, he says, now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all men as we do to you. So in other words, their love was not perfect either. Paul wants to uh, increase it as well. So their faith had things lacking and their love needed to increase, but both the faith and the love were evident and they were real and gave Paul this assurance that God had chosen the Thessalonians and began a good work in them, which he would complete at the coming of Christ. Now, if you would look at uh, second Thessalonians, second Thessalonians, you see Paul's prayers, they're answered. And he says in chapter one, verse three, he says, we are bound to give thanks 
to God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. His, his prayers were indeed being answered, and it was answered, and there was still good evidence that God had chosen these people and was at work in them. Their faith was growing and their love was increasing. And so if you think about this, the evidence of salvation, right? The evidence of salvation that God abides in you and you and God is not perfect faith or perfect love. The evidence is that the current of your affections flows toward God. So that God is your delight, even in affliction, and love is the labor of your life, even toward your enemies. Therefore, when you look at your life and you see room for improvement, don't conclude from that that God does not abide in you, right? Do what Paul did and pray that God would work in you and that your heart would be transformed. Eagerly look into his word because it is transformative and it is powerful and effective pray for that so if we confess that Jesus is the son of God we can have the assurance of salvation because God abides in us and us in God and this leads us to our next assurance then which is the assurance in judgment the assurance in judgment. So if you would flip back to 1 John chapter 4 and look at verse 17. John tells us how to have confidence or boldness on the day of judgment. And in verse 18, he tells us how to cast fear out of our lives. These are simply positive and negative ways of saying the same thing, right? Getting rid of fear is the negative way of becoming uh, confident. Um, so the main point of the text is clear. John wants to help us enjoy confidence before God, right? He doesn't want us to be paralyzed or depressed by fear of judgment, right? Nothing would make John happier than to produce a generation of Christians who were utterly confident that God would accept them on the judgment day. And I hope we all take the day of judgment as seriously as John does. And I sometimes wonder if, you know, we have maybe abandoned real belief in God's judgment and in the torment of hell, which our Lord Jesus spoke of um, very vividly um, and so often in, um, especially in Matthew, uh, Matthew 5, um, Matthew 10, 18, 23, um, and uh, also in John as well. Um, but the word hell is used 12 times in the New Testament. 11 of them on the lips of Jesus. And besides that, he spoke of judgment and a day of judgment, just as John does in 1 John 4.17. For example, Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew 10, 14 to 15, he says, And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet as you leave that town or house. Because truly I say to you, it shall be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. And the Lord has warned us so clearly, it is appointed unto man once to die, and after that comes judgment, right? Hebrews 9.23 speaks of that. And he has spoken vividly of the horror of hell, so bad that he says in Mark 9.47-48, to 48, that if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes, to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. That's how bad it is. And he's saying, take drastic measures to kill that sin before it kills you. And according to 1 John 4, 17 to 18, 
there is a way to approach the day of judgment with fearless confidence. No one who is following, uh, no one who is willing to follow John's teaching here needs to be frightened at the approach of death. None of us who accepts this teaching will have to approach the judgment seat of God with our fingers crossed, wondering, I wonder if we're going to make it. You know, I wonder if I'll be okay. You know, I hope I pass. John wrote this book to give us confidence for the day of judgment and to cast out fear. And how does this happen? Notice there are, there are three clauses in verse 17. If you look at verse 17, right, the first part, uh, by this is love perfected in us. And then the second part, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, then because as he is, so are we in this world. So it says that the result of having love perfected with us, right, 17a, is confidence for the day of judgment. 17b. And it says that the reason perfected love gives confidence is that it shows that we are like Christ. And earlier in verse 12, we had already looked at perfected love, right? Perfected love refers to uh, God's love in us coming to completion or coming into action as we love each other. So if we love one another, his love is perfected in us. So Perfected love is the love of God expressing itself in our love to each other. And it is very important that we understand this because it is different from what most people think of when they hear the word perfected, right? Most people, when they say something has been perfected, it means that it was changed from a state of flawed imperfection into a state of flawless perfection. But the Greek word that John uses does not actually, uh, or does not usually mean that in the New Testament. In the New Testament, the word generally means finished or completed or accomplished. When something like, you know, a trip or assignment, right, attains its goal, it's said to be perfected. So the meaning of the first clause of 1 John 4.17 would go like this. In this, right, in this, by this, that is, in your love for each other. God's love is put into action, and so it reaches its appointed goal. It does not remain at the imperfect, imperfect stage of mere talk. It doesn't stay there, but it reaches the stage of action. So in these verses, perfected love is not flawless love. Perfected love is when you, when you just, uh, when you don't just talk about the need to share Christ, you do it. It's when you don't just talk about the hungry, you actually, you feed them. And it's when you don't just talk about struggling new believers, you know, oh, I hope someone can help them, you, you disciple them, and so on. And now the second clause of the, the verse says that the result of having love perfected with us is that we have this confidence for the day of judgment, right? In this is love perfected with us, that we may have confidence in the day of judgment, right? In view of what we have now seen about perfected love, how is it that we gain confidence for the day of judgment? And the answer is this, by putting God's love into action for other people. Right? We don't gain confidence because we are sinlessly perfect in the way we love, right? Because, you know, we, we can't, right? That would contradict 1 John um, chapter 1, verse 7 to 10, where it says, if we say we do not have sin, we deceive ourselves. And we have seen that it is not, is not what the word, um, it's not what this word perfected means, right? We don't gain confidence by being sinlessly perfect. We gain confidence by putting our money where our mouth is. So this text is not teaching anything contrary to the thrust of the whole book, 
right? Loving each other is the reassuring evidence that we are truly born of God and bound for eternal life. In 1 John 3.14 says, we know, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. And today's text simply stresses the same thing that 1 John 3.18 through 19 did, namely that the love which can give us confidence before God is not mere talk, is not mere talk, but love that has been perfected into action. Right? You can see it, it says, not in mere word or speech, but in deed and in truth. And the last clause of verse 17 says that the reason active love, right, active love, perfected love gives confidence for the day of judgment is that it shows that we are like Jesus. By this is love perfected with us, that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. The assumption is that at the judgment day, God won't condemn, won't, God won't condemn people who are like his son. Living a life of active love shows that we have the spirit of Jesus. It shows we belong to the family of God, and that gives us confidence before God. And you can't live at odds with the character of Jesus and then expect to have any confidence when you stand before his father at the final judgment. But if the current of your life is like his, you can have confidence before his father. And to sum up verse 17, it can be paraphrased like this. When you love each other with love that is more than just talk, when the love of God reaches this practical goal of action in your life, you will experience a deep and unshakable confidence before God. Much talk of love with few deeds of love it destroys assurance, right? Much talk of love with few deeds of love destroys assurance, right? We've all experienced this from time to time. Our conscience condemns us because we think of deeds of love and don't do them. But if we put our money where our mouth is or put our time where our tongue is, then we will have a deep sense of the reality, reality of our own faith. And we will, uh, we will feel confident for the day of judgment because then we are acting the way Jesus acted. Now for verse 18, it, it seems to me that exactly the same thing is at stake in verse 18 as in verse 17, right? How to get rid of fear about the day of judgment. Verse 17 is positive. How to have confidence for the day of judgment. Verse 18 is negative how to not have fear for the day of judgment. And both give the same answer, perfect or perfected love. So look at verse 18. There is no fear in love, right? There's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and he who fears is not perfected in love. All right, let's look at the last part first. He who fears is not perfected in love. This is the exact negative of verse 17. Verse 17 says that when love is perfected with us, we have confidence. Verse 18 says that when we are not perfected in love, we don't have confidence. What we have is fear. And if we've been on the right track so far, we can say that a person perfected in love is not a person who loves flawlessly. He is a person who loves in deed and truth and not just in words. In these verses, perfection has to do with completion, not flawlessness. Perfect love is love that does not die on the vine. It's love that comes to fruition. It's love that goes beyond desire and is completed in a deed. Brothers and sisters, one of the, the main reasons why so many professing Christians have little confidence with God and little boldness with men is that their lives are not devoted in love 
to the salvation of the lost and to the glory of God, but instead are devoted, right, sometimes by just sheer default, to providing earthly security and comfort for themselves and their families. When we try to say that we are indwelt by the Spirit of Christ, and yet we do not devote ourselves, our lives, to the eternal good of other people, there is a deep contradiction within, within that, that gnaws away at our soul and dissolves our confidence and leaves us feeling weak and inauthentic. And so John wants us to discover that a life poured out in the labors of love for the eternal good of other people yields a sure consciousness of doing good, a deep peace of mind and a bright hope of a glorious destiny hereafter. And where will you find the power to do that? Verse 19. Verse 19, as for us, we love because he first loved us. As for us, we love because he first loved us. Our acts of love on behalf of others never cause God's love to be initiated towards us. It is always the reverse. God loves first. Then we know and we believe the love God has for us, in verse 16, trusting the love that he has for us in Jesus Christ. He abides in us and his love overflows into action and is perfected with us. And we have, then we have this confidence for the day of judgment. And it all begins with the love of God, right? We love because he first loved us. If you lack the power to love, look to the cross of Christ and let the love of God for sinners fill you with hope. And as we conclude tonight, John gives us an example. Verse 20 puts the point negatively. And verse 21 puts it positively. In verse 20, it says, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. In other words, religious piety that does not produce practical deeds of love is just empty talk, right? Or, or worse than empty. John would say it is a lie. A person who sings, you know, hallelujah, all I have is Christ. Hallelujah, Jesus is my life, right? With their hands held high in the air. And somehow they hold bitterness in their heart and show no love to visitors, is a liar. His song becomes a lie. The way you treat your visible brother or sister is the proof of whether you really delight in your invisible father and cherish his promises. And I don't think John is saying here in verse 20 that it is easier to love a brother that you can see than it is to love God whom you cannot see. Right? You, some people get that impression from the verse, he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Um, uh, a lot of people stumble over it and they kind of say, uh, you know, it, they think that it, it, the problem is that we, it's because we cannot physically see God. But he's simply saying this, if you really love God, right? If you really love God, if you really rest and delight in all that God is for you in all his amazing promises, right? If you really delight in that, then you will, you will, you will love your brother. You'll be so full of hope and joy and freedom that you will love to spread the good things of God to as many people as possible. But he adds, there's no way to know whether you really love God since he is not around to see right? You can't hug him or bow down in his visible presence or take an order directly from his lips. There is only one way to know whether your claim to love God is a self-deception or not. Namely, in the way you relate to the people 
you can see, right? In the way that you can, you relate to the people you can see. If you don't love your brother whom you can see, then there is an open evidence that you can't be telling the truth when you talk about the invisible workings of your heart toward an invisible God. So verse 20 says negatively, if you don't love your visible brother, then you can't, you can't be loving the invisible God. And then John closes the section with a command just as he began it, right? This commandment we have from him. John is saying, it's not mine. It's his. It's his commandment. That the one who loves God should love his brother also. With a kind of unrequited love, you might say, wanting nothing in return, an unconditional love that accepts and forgives, a vicarious love that bears the pain of others, a self-giving love that practices sacrifice, and a righteous love that tolerates no sin. And listen then, love is not an emotion is not a feeling to which we give expression whenever we feel like it. There is, there is that kind of love, and it's a wonderful thing. It belongs, you know, in the human life. Um, we're not talking about it here. You know, there is that, that love that you think of, um, that wonderful love between a husband and wife, the one that the family shares, the one that a children share with their parents, a friend with a friend. We're not talking about those right, which are enhanced and enriched by the love of Christ in the hearts of believers. We're talking about, we're talking about this kind of love that extends towards anybody who has a need, and particularly those in the family of God, right? It's, it's a kind of, it's a perfect kind of love, a different love than the world's kind of love. It is a whole, complete love, right? It is the essence of God manifest in Christ. It is our testimony. It is the assurance of our salvation. It is the assurance in judgment. And it is only reasonable because you can never truly have the love of God in you and not love others with that love, right? This kind of love is the mark of the true believer. And the true believer has this blessed assurance, right? As we sing uh, even when we look at the old, the hymn, Blessed Assurance, uh, it says, Blessed Assurance, Jesus is mine. You know, what a foretaste of glory divine, heir of salvation, purchase of God, born of his spirit, washed in his blood. Um, and then later down the, the hymn, it says, Perfect submission, all is at rest. I in my Savior am happy and blessed watching and waiting, looking above, filled with his goodness, lost in his love. How do we say these things? And we know with uh, most confidence, we know with a lot of confidence that if God is in us and we are in God, and we have this assurance. We can sing these songs with this kind of assurance and count these blessings. So, Brothers and sisters, we are called to live out this kind of love. It starts with confessing Christ and believing in all the things of God. And then because of that, God will cause you to, to have your love overflow onto others, right? It's so much. He, he pours so much out, right? He doesn't just give you enough. He gives you more than enough so that it causes it to come out, right, to others. And you have this assurance that when you see the Lord at judgment, you will be filled with joy knowing that you see the Father and know that he loves you. There's no fear. And with what is going on in the world, world right now, it is more important, uh, it, it is very important um, that we stand out as Christians. We need a love in a way where in the midst of chaos, right, those who do not know God would come to know him through the love we exhibit, right, through the aroma of the love of Christ permeating through our actions and our lips, 
so that we could give them what they need the most, the gospel of Jesus Christ. We must preach the gospel, and it must be carried out. And we must uphold our testimony so that one day, those who are lost can also say that they have an assurance of salvation, that they could say they have an assurance in judgment. That is our mission here in this world, right? I mean, think about it. How joyful would that be for those who are lost to be found so that the Father would embrace them and welcome them into eternity? That would be so glorious to see. And I've had... um, you know, have the joy of some of you sharing some of this love uh, to to my wife and I. And so, you know, I, I was debating whether or not I wanted to, you know, you know, share a, a personal kind of experience. But, you know, it's just in, in the theme became um, you guys asking what we needed, um, mainly because I, I know some of you, uh, don't know this, but uh, but because we're we are expecting a, a boy, a baby boy, in July, um, because of you know my wife being pregnant, and I know that a lot of you cared about you know what was um, you know how our health was going to be, our exposure and everything, um, and even as the exposure you know seemed like it was dying down or it was easier to get groceries. A lot of you sacrificed and, and um, you know, sacrificed your time, came by, um, helped even drop off one item. You know, it could just be one item, but it was just the, the desire of your heart and the intent of wanting to be Christ-like, you know. We were beneficiaries of that. You know, I just this past week or two weeks, um, I was getting a text from a brother who just said, I'm going to Safeway. Is there something you need? And, you know, through his run, he just thought about me, uh, even or thought about us. And then even as before fellowship, uh, you know, a, a brother and his family just came by and um, got stuff from Costco and dropped it off at our doorstep. And I, I missed them because you know, they were so fast that they were like ninjas. Um, but you know, I, these things just remind me in a very small way just how you guys are uh, thinking about the brethren, uh, how you guys are thinking about the church. And this is just one way. You know, I don't want to say that, you know, this is the thing that you guys need to do, right, to buy us food and this is how love is perfected. It's, it's, not, it's just one very small thing that you can do. Uh, there are a lot of things that are, are happening even as we cope with what is going on, um, you know, just not being able to fellowship and have service in person, you know, we fall out of this fellowship and we kind of, um, there are believers who could be hurting in their faith, you know, we need to check up on each other, right? But the thing is that I want to emphasize is that we felt, we felt, my wife and I felt, the love of God just resonating in your actions and, and to even consider one another. You know, uh, we were so encouraged that we thought, like, who else? Who can we help? You know, who can we help? And as a result of, you know, your love, right, and the result of our love put forth to action, it should cause non-believers to ask, where does this love come from? And it causes believers to praise God for this kind of love, right? To exalt God with their lips. So I just want to encourage you to continue to help each other run the race. As is is difficult, right? But you know, don't slow down and just keep going 
be encouraged, encourage someone, right? How continue to show this kind of love. Let's be vigilant in making sure that, you know, we, we do these things. We have to be aware. We have to be thinking about uh, each other in the sense so that we can continue to display God's love. Let us pray. God, we pray for those who do not know you, Lord. Um, we know sin is rampant. We knew that from day one. We knew that uh, what sin can do, and we know that there are so many um, out there who do not know you, Lord. But help us to not be lukewarm Christians. Uh, help us to continue to carry out this mission of ours, to spread forth the good news that it is not too late if they could confess that Jesus is the Son of God and they would be saved and that this good news brings them into everlasting joy and salvation with the Father. And we know that there are a lot of hurts and there are a lot of sadness, Lord. But we know that the joy comes, it comes from you. Help us to make your presence known through just our testimony to unbelievers, Lord. By the words that we, we say, by the actions we produce. May it be that when people look at us, they see Christ and they see a love that they have never seen before. Lord, we thank you for being with us. We thank you that you continue to preserve the church, preserve your church and your people Lord, we look forward to the day that we will see you face to face, arms wide open, with no fear. We look forward to being with each other. For now, Lord, help us to be faithful in what we ought to do. We thank you, Lord, and pray all in your name. Amen.